If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Welcome, everyone, to a Baseball America podcast. It's our morning version, sponsored by nobody. Sorry, Mika Brzezinski, no, no morning Joe here. Uh, it's John and JJ instead. Uh, me with my coffee, JJ with the bapper, and we're going to talk prospects to penance. That's the much-awaited cover feature of our minor league preview issue where we obviously discuss that the Kansas City Royals have the number one farm system in the minor league and, and you know all major league organizations. But, JJ, the point of the prospects to penance feature is what do you do with these prospects? How do you turn prospects into a winning organization? And I think it's a fascinating topic. I love that we kind of go next level a little bit with this, you know, as we did with Aaron Fitt when he, uh, okay, the bats are changing. What is that going to do to college baseball? Well, defense is at a premium. Here we're talking about the prospects and, you know, how the how the Royals can, can make a winning team out of this. And one of the ways you decided to attack this issue is, okay, let's look back at other farm systems that have been uh, plentiful with prospects. What was their track record? And kind of what we found, JJ, was that Going from great prospects to penance is a lot harder than it looks. It's not something where you just build a great farm system and then you just wait three years and then you roll in your, your you celebrate your World Series titles, which kind of I think makes a whole lot of sense if you think about it. Because if it was that easy, then I know building a farm system is hard, but if it was that easy, then everyone would be doing it. Um, right. And and there are a lot of uh, definitely a, a lot of pieces involved in taking a, a really good farm system and turning it into a successful big league club. And there are a lot of kind of hurdles along that way too, especially when you talk about service time and free agency and all that, the window often is, is can be pretty small. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we talked about the, what are the, I think, I think one of the more, you need to be having coffee like yeah. I am or at least some hot uh, tea. One of the, I think one of the most instructive examples is one of the, also the most recent examples because all our listeners, young and old, will remember this and I think remember a lot of the details. And that's the Cleveland Indians. You know, the Indians really have done this twice. You really only, you discussed in the handbook era their, you know, their group of te- prospects, basically the Bartolo Colon windfall era of prospects. Right. If you think about it, the, the Indians really did it twice because they did it in they the early 90s. They also had the Carlos Baerga group. Yeah, I like to think of it as the Eddie Taubensee windfall. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, they trade Eddie Taubensee to the Astros. They get Kenny Lofton. And that seemed to be, Kenny Lofton seemed to be the final piece. But in those early, you know, the mid 90s, when the Indians first took off and when Cleveland first rocked, uh, you know, they had some homegrown pieces and they had, you know, it was actually kind of a similar formula. Uh, back then, as right now, the problem with the Indians organization was developing pitching. And when that first good Indians wave, you know, all their pitchers were out of you know, out of the organization. The only homegrown guys they really developed uh, were Chuck Nagy and then, uh, of course, Jared Wright, who was almost a World Series her- hero in 1997. But because they didn't have anyone else, they rushed Jared Wright into the breach, and you know he didn't really handle success well after the 97 season. Really, only had a couple more decent years, uh, and his best year probably came in Atlanta. But uh, that first wave. All kinds of offensive talent, you know, Joey, uh, Joey Bell, don't call me Joey Bell, Albert Bell, you know, Kenny Lofton, Bayerga, Sandy Alomar Jr., uh, when they got in their trade, you know, they had, they had trades, they had homegrown guys. Then they tore it down basically in the early 2000s and then they were able to build it back up again by trading Cologne, their other homegrown ace, uh, again, who kind of developed a little bit too late to join Bell and Lofton at their peak. They really built that this the second iteration, the 05 almost won the division, 06 team that was scuttled by a horrible bullpen, 07 team that you know had a 3-1 lead in the AL Championship Series. That was really built mostly through trades, and then they did again have a homegrown ace. Uh, this time was CC Sabathia. I said trades, and um, they also there were some. I'd say trades were a key part, but also you have to work in the Victor Martinez's in all of the world too. So. 
Ah, uh, absolutely. The international side. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that consistently over the course of that, except for guys like uh, Albert Bell, most of the guys for the Indians that I'm thinking of, I, if I'm missing a detail here or there, I apologize, but most of them were international or trades, not so much through the draft. Um, but they had a top 10, J.J., what was it, 2003 you looked right. at? 2000. That was pretty outrageous. Well, they had, in at that time, you're, you're talking Grady Sizemore, Cliff Lee, uh, Brandon Phillips, who obviously did not really uh, – produce it for them they they kind of lost him and, and watched him produce when he went somewhere else jeremy guthrie same story as brandon phillips victor martinez travis hafner uh you know josh Barr, johnny peralta coco chris ryan church ben broussard willie Tavares, ben francisco jody garrett they were producing uh, the, the funny thing about it is is that that indians group if you say building from within and and kind of letting a, a group of prospects turn into a group of, of very successful big leaguers, they did what you want to do. They right. They had a couple. I mean, CC Sabathia, Cliff Lee have become aces. Sizemore, Hafner, Victor Martinez, uh, even Johnny Peralta. Uh, I think you can say at one point were were legitimately impact players. Oh, yeah, Johnny Peralta was a 20 home run a year shortstop. Right. Those, those are those, those are almost vanished right now. Those were all impact players. Well, that's what you're looking to develop. You want to develop impact players. In their case, they largely did, but it didn't work out as well as as I think they would have hoped, and definitely probably not as well as Indians fans would have hoped, because you had a year where the bullpen sunk everything. You had a year where they won right. 93 games, and that wasn't enough. And really, I think one of the big things that jumped out is, is, again, about how the window can be pretty small. Sabathia and Cliff Lee are two of the best pitchers in baseball now. Yeah, no doubt. The problem for the Indians, though, is that by the point at which Sabathia and Lee became elite aces was right around the time that they got really expensive and were available for, you know, were getting ready to hit free agency or – I will I will say to me, uh, you know, I think that the, the, a lot of the formulas that teams and even you know analysts, you know, outside analysts like us use, one of the tried and true things is oh, you can't tie up all your, uh, you really can't tie up all your uh, salary in, in one or two guys, right? right. Uh, your your payroll. If the two guys are two of the five best pitchers in baseball, what do you think, JJ? Do you think the Indians? <clears throat> Wish that they had. You think if the Indians had it to do over again, that they would try all they could to lock up Sabathia and Lee both and, tr- and keep them both? I mean, I know there's a lot of money. That's three hundred million dollars in terms of long-term commitments. But if you're t- if you're starting with two number ones, I don't know. Do you go Miami Heat on it? Can the rest of the can the rest of the uh, can the rest of the team be basically if you're doing it right far, in terms of development, uh, just just young prospects and uh, young players and the occasional six-year free agent fine, do you think they could have stayed competitive if they had re-signed Sabathia and Lee, or is that not even well, plausible? Well, I, I do think uh, I think if you had it all to do over again, you definitely want to spend some of that money that way instead of Travis Hafner and his long-term extension. But Yeah, that's that, to me it looks like Hafner is the number one. And it's not his fault. He got hurt, and he hasn't been able to stay healthy. But that contract is the number one thing that killed that club. But, but the bigger thing is, is I think you just hit on it, and this is another one of the, the steps that we talk about in this prospects dependence feature, is you can't bring a group of guys up, and they, even if they turn into stars, and then say, you can't then have a fallow farm system over the next three or four years. You're right. That's the lesson that you wrote that, that I had not really considered before, but after that first wave, you have to have a you second. You got to have wave two, and that's it. You got to have wave number one, two. One of the other things we talked about in, in this feature, you, you look at the Diamondbacks. Again, the Diamondbacks brought up a group that well, it, it's not like you look and say, okay, we had the Diamondbacks. I think it was 2007 as our number one farm system, and the here's their top ten: Justin Upton, Chris Young, Carlos Gonzalez, Alberto Cayaspa, Miguel Montero, Micah Owings, Mark Reynolds. Justin Nipper, Tony Pena, and Ross Ollendorf. Oh, yeah, by the way, Brett Anderson, number 11. 
Right. That's Don't. not a group, but that's not a group where you say, wow, those guys have just all failed to be anything like what they hoped they would be. You know, the pitching has not turned out, except for Anderson, you could say. Right. O- Owings and Owings and Nippert have been bit players. Uh, the one, the version I'm looking at has Anderson number ten. I guess by the time we, uh, by the time the magazine right. came out or the 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 web t- came out, there'd been a, there'd been a deal. Right. Um, um, but uh, but yeah, I mean that's that's Brady Anderson's the best pitcher out of that, and he had just been drafted in the supplement, you know, the second round, I should say, a high school uh, second round pick. And uh, you know, I, I, I always love, <laughs> always love reading about those things. I mean, Brett Anderson listens to some of the podcasts and reads some of our stuff, and he used to find. Great humor in the biggest knock against Anderson is his soft body and lack of athleticism and agility. He had trouble fielding bunts and covering first base at times in high school. He, he gets a real kick out of that, suffice it to say. Um, but, but you look at that and you say, okay, well, that group is a, a pretty solid group. And you do have to remember, they, they made the playoffs that year. <laughs> you know, not, yeah, not because, even with a negative. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, not because the large part of those, of those, uh, the funny thing, Micah Owings was probably the, uh, the the one in that top ten who contributed most to them making the playoffs that year, but that's become the core of that team. But really, the problem is is that that group came up, and by two thousand eight, that farm system was bereft of talent. And the other part of that is that their success coming ahead of time, coming ahead of schedule almost threw them off. Well, it did throw them off, it seems like. Like the Indians had their success in 05. That almost seemed to throw them off a little bit. Uh, you know, they made they, they still made that pennant run in 07, despite the fact that, uh, you know, that was Cliff Lee's, you know, Going to the minors year, year, yeah. Right, exactly. It wasn't even on the playoff roster, which is really kind of mind-boggling when you think back on it. Um, just how everything really was working. A lot of things were working against the Indians and they still came within a game of the world series, but with the, with the, the diamondbacks, they almost got too many breaks. It seems like early JJ. And then once they had that success, the temptation, like you said, they didn't have that second wave a, and the temptation of, Oh, we've arrived. Well, they really hadn't arrived yet. Had they? Well, and you look at that team and that team, you know, you, you, if you look at runs scored, runs allowed, they were, Negative on runs allowed, you know, on their on their run differential that year, which is not usually the sign of a playoff team. It's a sign. In their case, it was a sign of a team with a lot of good luck and a really good bullpen, which means they were exceptional in one-run games. Well, right. So then they made their moves. They traded away Carlos Gonzalez. They traded away Brett Anderson to get Dan Heron. And it's not like Dan Heron didn't end up being very good for them. But again, it's that problem. It it's. Everything has to come together for you. For them, really, what happens? Brandon, when Brandon Webb got hurt, they were done because <laughs> you can't replace, or at least they could not in any way replace an ace like that. And it, it's just, again, it <laughs> the things that jump out from this is just is how hard it is to 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 do this. Not that you can't have a right. year. Now it depends on what your definition of success is because. It's funny, like we we tied this to the Royals. The Royals are our number one farm system, and I think that's by by a pretty good margin. And they have a very deep farm system with a lot of potential impact players. And the question really is: is okay, this is a Royals team that has not really had any success. You could be, you know, I, I think the way I put it was, or had at least at one point, you could be legally drinking a beer as you listen to this podcast as a Royals fan, and not remember success. At all. A little while back, I said, okay, Royals fans, I'm just asking you, what would qualify as success to you as far as what has to happen with this group of prospects? And the answers were not two World Series titles, you know, three appearances in the World Series. A couple of people were like, I want to make us make it to the World Series. I want a couple where I want to make, can we make, can we win the World Series once? And, and, and so, with that, it, it's it, it is something where if you look at it, that by that, like by the, that the bar for the bar for success is not set that high by their by fans. that standard of success. Well, the track record's pretty good for them because right. the Indians. You can say they weren't as successful as they wanted to be because they never won it. They never they never reached that that ultimate pinnacle. But at the same time, that farm system that the Indians produced, you know that 
had going in 2003 meant that they were a contender for three out of four years. Right, right. They were, they in, were it. in it. and They were thought to be in it. They were thought to be in it. They made the playoffs in a stretch during that. And as you said, I mean, they, they weren't that far away. You could argue that the Diamondbacks, you know, by that 2017 that was playing the playoffs had Chris Young, Justin Upton, Micah Owings, all those guys. In some ways, you could argue that that was a success. You can, uh, but, you know, I want to bring in the two teams who I think are the, if you're a Royals fan, the two teams that you hope to emulate the most are right. the Twins and the Rays. And, and the Twins, have, uh, to correct me if I'm wrong, were the Twins ever the number no. one organization in our talent rankings? They, they've always been relatively high, no. but they've really never been number one. They have they? not. They have not during the, at least during the, uh, the, the, the prospect handbook era. Um, the, the, the knack with them is, is being relatively high. And the interesting thing with them is, is that they are exactly the proof of the, it, you can't, it's not one wave, it's wave after wave. Right. The twins have contended while completely turning over their team. Yeah, and they and, and yeah, there's there's never really been a significant pause, and really in the in the five years I guess that I've been doing their farm system uh, rankings for us, you know Nick Blackburn is their worst number one prospect that year where Brad Blackburn was the number one was their worst farm system year, and that year they also traded Santana and that trade didn't really work out. And they still made the playoffs the next year, or they didn't, they tied for first and missed the playoffs on game 163, and they've made the playoffs the subsequent two years. I mean, they have had – so they, they really are uh, – the reason that people hold them up as the model is not because they uh, – I don't, I don't think it's because other executives say, you know, we want to always trade power arms for guys with those strikes and just have a bunch of three and four starters with those strikes too. You know, that's not really the part – People are trying to emulate with the Twins, although maybe they should. The part they are trying to emulate is you don't ever stop scouting. You don't ever stand still scouting and player development. You don't have a, a year or two. You just can't have a year or two like the Diamondbacks had where, okay, our big league team is good. Let's draft a bunch of low-ceiling college guys and hope that we get some role players. And that's basically what the Diamondbacks did. Uh, I mean, that, that's with the exception of Jared Parker – that little stretch after like a 2007, 2008, 2009 drafts was a pretty, I guess it's 06 to 08 really, the exception of us, Upton and uh, Parker. I guess Upton was 05, but it's a pretty fallow period right. there in their drafts for three straight years. The Twins just have not had that. They just they keep on churning it out, and that's even with a lot of uh, low periods for them internationally because they've Latin America. They had a very long fallow period. The Twins did where they did not develop their own homegrown Latin players. Uh, you know, Liriano, Santana, their best guys have all come from outside the organization. So well, they, I mean, they've really been that, the model franchise. That right there, by the way, if you want to talk about yeah, if you want to talk about things that are tough to, to emulate, it's yeah, it's okay. We're going to go out and get a number one, number two starter, and we'll do it through the Rule Five Draft, and we'll do it for trading when a guy's in Mayball. Again, I don't think uh, you can dis uh, you can underestimate the these these heist trades <laughs> when you make these heist trades. I mean, Jeff Bagwell was the rock of the Astros for 15 years. I mean, I know he had Biggio there too, but I mean, this is a Hall of I mean, that that trade, it's that one trade changed the course of a franchise. And the the Twins, you know, where would the Twins be without that uh, Pierzynski trade? Would they have had this level of success? I really I don't know if they would have. I mean, Joe Nathan was pretty doggone good there and, and could be again. Um, and obviously the Santana, you know, rule five pick, that's just, that's just great scouting. And it, it, you know, there's a little bit of luck there. You know, you gotta, you gotta get lucky. You know, he stayed healthy and all those kind of things. But, but the twins are, are one of the models, but the Expos kind of are the other model too. No, I was going to say, I'll bring up the Rays because the Rays are, the okay. Rays are also another team that does it wave after wave. The Rays, right. The Rays kind of, just said farewell to the first group of the core of the successful raised teams. Crawford's gone. Right. They traded away Garza. That being said, I, I don't know about you, but personally, I, I expect to see the Rays contending for several years to come. Yeah, and not just that. Um, they, they're far, well, you saw them. You saw their high class A team last year um, down in Charlotte for that weekend. 
and the pitching that they had on that team. You did the Florida State League prospect list was pretty outrageous. Durham contends every year in the International League and usually has prospects. And uh, our Matt Eddy is down in spring training, and he was at a B game the other day. I'm, I've seen him tweet about this, and he was just tweeting out what Durham's roster was going to be was in that game that he watched. It was an inter-squad game. Matt Moore was pitching for the Montgomery team, and he shut down a good AAA lineup with some decent prospects like Desmond Jennings, Robinson Chirinos on that roster um, that they acquired from uh, the Cubs. They've got Chris Archer uh, from the Cubs, Brandon Geyer from the in that Cubs deal. Um, you know, their prospects are a little bit heavier loaded on the pitching side uh, right now for their organization, but they're still – quite a bit of talent obviously in the Tampa organization or else we wouldn't have ranked them as the number two farm system so they're definitely in reload mode and uh you know not uh, not afraid to take some risks in the uh in the draft either also I think a kind of a underrated international operation with uh with Tampa they've, they seem like they've got a decent stream of really some some young power arms out of Latin America um I'm forgetting the left-hander's name uh that I who, who sounds really good in their in their farm system I just was ranking our prospects by position last night uh that's going to be the next issue any romero that guy's scouting report sounds really impressive we, yeah, obviously we like alex colomay they've got a, a burgeoning latin program there as well to complement what they do in the draft and and as we have to mention also it i think is required to mention with all these is that and they have pretty much uh an extra like what is it 78 picks in the first two rounds or something like that that's <laughs> Yeah, it's going to be really fascinating to watch. This is obviously a good draft, uh, a strong, perceived as a strong draft class, perceived as a deep draft class, uh, both on the college and the high school sides. Um, more deep on the high school side than it is uh, strong at the top, whereas the college side is really loaded at the top. So this is going to be a pretty fascinating uh, draft exercise to see how much Tampa spends and, and what they decide to do. Uh, how they decide to approach this draft. Right, and but the point we're trying to make here is, is that, and the other thing I, I do think we have to point out with the Rays is the Rays also have traded very well. Because they, they the, have. The, the Rays, if you look at these Rays, these successful Rays teams, part of it has also been built through trades, you know, and or, you know, kind of picking Jason Bartlett was, you know, a key member of those right. teams as a shortstop. Well, that was... I don't want to see it was a yeah, throw-in in the Delman Young Matt Garza trade, but but he wasn't he he wasn't the main piece at least, or I don't think the Twins viewed him as the the main piece that they were giving away. No, no doubt they did not, and I I think uh, like you said, all these teams have what the what the Rays have done so well to me is they've had the complementary pieces that you know in Arizona one of their big complementary pieces in '07 was Eric Burns. And they overvalued Eric Burns, locked him up, which prompted them to trade Carlos Quentin. And Carlos Gonzalez. Like 10 cents on the dollar. Yeah, I mean, and exactly. Made them say, okay, yes, we can include Carlos Gonzalez in this Dan Heron trade. Um, and, you know, and then Eric Burns flopped. You know, in Tampa, they had Carlos Pena. He had his big year, but instead of locking him up, Tampa kind of rode him out. His, his performance was not as good his last couple of years as it was when he first got to Tampa. And they lost. And they wished him, him but, luck, know, and they said, they, "Good luck with your future that's, endeavors." That's it. You're not a ten million dollar a year well, player. We could at least do as well. And you know, like you said, I mean, like they've had to do that. And and then they made some smaller trades. I mean, their Casimir trade, I think, is one of the bigger uh, success stories for them. They again, a young player, face of the franchise for a while. You could see there would have been some sentiment and some reason to lock that guy up, but they sold high on him. They've got Alex Torres. They got Sean Rodriguez out of that already, helping their big league roster. Uh, that's a trade that's going to be paying them dividends for a while, I think. And, and that's the the old Branch Ricky adage, you know, better to trade a year too soon than or you know to get rid of a player a year too soon than a year too late. And right. and that's one of the things I think that that is also you have to watch with this. And this will be what's going to be fascinating to watch with the Royals over the next couple of years. They're going to bring up. It, it looks like we're going to see the first couple of guys that are showing up. But, I, I, if you'd have told me that Aaron Crow would be one of the first guys to to, to hit the big leagues, I, I would have been a little surprised. I have to admit it. But um, right. but the first couple of guys are starting to trickle in. But by the end of this year, and by especially the start of next year, you're going to really see a large majority of these prospects hit the big leagues. Well, what you know, talking to executives from other teams who've done this before, one of the key things going forward is is okay. You have to know who your core players are, who are the guys you're going to build around. And I think the Royals have a pretty good sense of who those guys are right now. 
Hosmer. Yeah, Mustakas, Mustakas, Hosmer, and, and Myers, and then Montgomery and Lamb, right. and, uh, and and we'll see who else. But I mean, that's, that's your that's a pretty good core. That, five, that's your core. Yeah. That's that's the okay. If these guys all fail, then we're done. We're in trouble. Yeah, yeah exactly. The other somebody Dayton Moore becomes a special assistant right. to some general manager. But at the same somewhere. time, okay, so you have your core. The other thing with this that multiple people pointed out is is but you also have to be aware of you have to continually evaluate because you may discover that someone else is part of your core that you did not expect. Or you may find that a guy that you believe is part of your core is not going to be part of your core. You know, you again I believe in March in March Madness, I think this is called the Derek Williams. Exactly. Yeah, that would be a <laughs> the guy in Arizona who Vern Ludquist kept reminding us was not the top recruit in that class and became well, Obviously, the best player, but yeah, I, the, I mean, is there a candidate for that, JJ? Who's who's your who's your pick to click? If you had to pick somebody in that Royals deep farm system who becomes a member of that core, who right now maybe the Royals aren't necessarily counting on, who would that be? I mean, there's a number of guys I could go with on that, but I mean, like, like I, I, my, my pick is Salvador Perez. I think it's I think Salvador Perez is the most likely guy there. He, he seems like he's got a chance to be a solid everyday regular catcher and maybe a little bit more than that, and that would be a pretty big benefit. That would, especially you look, that catching situation they have right now is... Yeah, it's not good. I, I, again, there, there are moves that I don't necessarily myself understand, but Matt Treanor, like if, if getting him is, is solidifying your catching situation... That's that's probably not a good thing. So short term, the sad commentary on Lucas May. Yeah, and yeah, that <laughs> and, and a very quick like, okay, well, we're moving on from Lucas May, it would appear. But, um, but Salvador Perez is a very good candidate there. Like I, I, I did talk to a couple of people at the Royals who made the kind of made the joke like they saw in the first couple of weeks in spring training. It's like, okay, we got to get him down now because <laughs> this is the guy who spent last year in A ball. And so he's not ready to be in the big leagues. But the thing about it is, is that pitchers so enjoy pitching to him, especially again we talk about the lack of catching talent that the Royals have at the upper levels right now. That if the longer he stuck around, probably the longer, the more that the more and more that the big league club would like him. So you know, it's time to get him down down catching some uh, some minor league games so we can have him another year, year and a half to kind of mature and percolate. But uh, Salvador Perez, I'll go on another, you know. Uh, Jason Adam could be a guy who moves pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, draft pick for them yeah. last year, high school guy from their area who just has electric stuff. And he could be, when we talk about that next wave, you have the, you know, by the middle of next year, you would expect, say, okay, you've got a rotation that includes Montgomery, Lamb, Duffy, and say Dwyer. Say all four of those guys are right. up. Because at some point, the Royals are going to hand it over to the young guys. And I'd say maybe they have one veteran to go with that. Well, right. a normal rule is is that you're not – if you bring up four guys like that, and do, I will point out you also then – that's not counting the Crow becoming a starter or Melville turning it around. or There's other guys that they could possibly fit in there. But those guys aren't all generally going to succeed. Well, you have to figure out, right. okay – is this guy need more time or is it time to move on? That's always a tough decision. But whenever they reach that point, that may be about the point where, you know, Odorizzi or Jason Adam or Robinson Yambati or Jordano Ventura or some of those guys are ready to be the next wave. And that's going to be. And those, those are, yeah, that's the, that's the part I like the best about the, the Royals is that while they've spent a lot in the draft, they've all at the, and, and for guys who should move fairly quickly, they've also gotten, uh, their Latin American program, they've really heavily invested in. And I, I love, uh, you know, Jordano Ventura, Cheslor Cuthbert, and Robinson Yambati. One of the one of the things that stinks the most about Aaron Fitt having moved to California is the lack of random pronunciations of Cheslor Cuthbert in the Baseball America uh, head, World Headquarters. Um, there are lots of things that stink about Aaron uh, not being in our office anymore. Uh, one of them is not the ridiculous level of college coverage from California, but not having him say uh, Chesler Cuthbert, I think he just was so – a lot of us sometimes last year when you just would keep on talking about Royals prospects, I think we almost got a little overwhelmed. It was like, that guy's a Royal too, you know, and doing the prospect ranking by position. Well, ben Ballard talked about it for us, J.J., about uh, – when he was reminding me in our prospect position rankings to make sure that just because someone ranks you know, 13th or 15th or 17th in the Royals system – 
don't leave them out of those prospect position rankings. They're going to be better than a lot of organizations, number fives, number sevens, or, you know, in some organizations, number two or three prospects. So I think we just all got a little overwhelmed sometimes with the depth of talent that Kansas City has. And JJ, that brings us to the Expos and their place kind of is a, a history of a franchise with a lot of prospects, both the cautionary tales and the things that they did right. Before we get into Montreal, let's remind everyone that uh, the podcast is brought to you by the Baseball America Digital Edition, which is now available. And the Digital Edition brings you the magazine on the go. No longer are you waiting by the mailbox for the latest issue to arrive, although for me there's some charm in that. But every two weeks you're notified by email that a new Digital Edition is available for download. You just go to the hyperlink, you, know, you just visit the link, baseballamerica.com slash subscribe. You can get the digital edition for as low as 176 per issue. And JJ, correct me if I'm wrong, but the issue, the minor league preview with this blue wave prospects to penance article, that digital edition is sponsored by Rawlings and is available for free even to non-subscribers, correct? That is correct. You can just go right now, just click on it and read the magazine as if you have the magazine in front of you, the digital edition. And with that, the best part of that is that you can read about a lot of this that we're talking about in the podcast, but... You know, JJ, you didn't have room for all the lessons that the Expos taught us. Um, besides the fact that they taught us that baseball probably should not, cannot work long term in a French speaking city, although I actually kind of think it could. Um, what other lessons can the Royals, who obviously don't have a lot of French speakers around, <laughs> glean Me? from what happened in Montreal? No. Um, <laughs> that's my very bad French accent. I liked it. Uh, but the thing that jumps out is that the Expos when you talk to people who were involved with the Expos, even now, 20 years after they were involved with the Expos, they can't help but talk about it in this almost romanticized viewpoint of just how great it was to be the group that was building these Expos. And the the people who were involved with that team, by the way, uh, it's a it's kind of a who's who. I mean, it was an impressive list of, of people who've gone on. But I, I could talk about the front office, but I'll just throw this out. Here's your 1990 Montreal Expos minor league managers, okay? Tim Johnson, Jerry Manuel, Don Werner, and Mike Quaddy. Yeah, it's uh, three guys who wanted to be big league managers. Future big league I, managers. I, yeah. And that Don Warner, I believe, is Pop Warner. Is that the same guy, Pop Warner? I don't think that's the, Pop. Uh, because because no this is no this is Warner W E R N E R. So, oh, okay, not the same guy who's the Double A Cardinals manager. Okay, but and that this was okay. So before the 1990 season, our top hundred: Delano De Shields was number 12, Marquise Grissom was number 17, Mel Rojas was 35, Larry Walker was 42, Will Cordero was 62. They also had Howard Farmer 69, Reed Cornelius 100, and they also right around that time traded to pick up a very a young Moises Alou. Moises Alou. That, that's Sorry, that's kind of a homage. And not long after that, they traded. A couple years later, they traded Shields for Pedro Martinez. That's that's a cornerstone of a franchise right there. I mean, that's you, you. That's that's a way to end the you know to interrupt you know the Braves dynasty, obviously. As you pointed out to me when we were writing, you were writing this article, you know they didn't they weren't bumping up the Braves until 1994, but still the National League East pre 94 was no picnic. You had the Bonds, Van Slyke, Drabeck Pirates in 1991 92, one of the better teams you know of of the last you know 30 years, three straight division titles, and then you had the 1993 Phillies, certainly a charmed team. And kind of a team of destiny kind of thing. And then, of course, uh, you know, the Braves had already won three straight divisions in the National League West and, had, you know, won 104 games in 93, come into the Expos division in 94, and the Expos just brushed them aside, which was, you know, they had 74 and 40 at the time of the strike. So I guess the, one of the lessons that you learn from the Expos is take advantage of your window of opportunity when it's there. Their window of opportunity was shut on them quite rudely by the 94 strike. Uh, the Royals had the benefit right now of what seems to be a very seamless, painless CBA renegotiation, JJ. But what other lessons, I guess, other than don't have your peak year in the middle of <laughs> Armageddon, did they pass on? Yeah, <laughs> please schedule your your peak at a year that's not going to get have the World Series canceled. Step one. Um, 
sorry, you know, there's just nothing that could have been done about that. Um, is an ownership kind of another part of this? Yeah, too? ownership's I mean, a part of it. But all, the other thing that is kind of the reminder, it, it does fit also into that whole message of the window is short. What happened with the expos? And by the way, do remember. They had just traded away. We talked about that list I just gave to Shields, Grissom, Rojas, Walker, and all that. They just traded away Randy Johnson at that point, too. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. 1990, <laughs> 91. Yeah. You know, so we're, we're talking something pretty insane, but the, the, the message though is the window is short. Um, yeah, I think that's the message you can take from it. Uh, ownership does matter because in their case, what happened is, is that the owner who they'd had sold the team and, if they'd have continued to have Charles Bronfman, I think I'm pronouncing that somewhat close to right. I uh, think you did. Uh, still the, the owner. They maybe could have, he was rich enough that they maybe could have continued to, uh, you know, held on to some of those players. But I, I think also the, the other message is in some ways kind of a, an encouraging thing though of, of, of what you hope for if you're a Royals fan. You look at that, that, like that 1990 top 100 list we just gave you. The Shields, Grissom, Rojas, Walker, Will Cordero. None of those, their top five guys there, none of them failed. Right. No, you're right. You know, Rojas was a solid reliever, which isn't as valuable as having a number one starter, but he was at his best an exceptional. He was outrageous. Yeah, he was outrageous at, at his peak. He was a, he was a, uh, he was a difference maker repeat, uh, reliever for 80 to 100 innings a year at his peak. And, and really, what it comes down to is, is that you, it, the other thing that just seems to kind of, that seems to be true of all these teams we're talking about though, and this is the thing we'll have to see with the Royals. The other thing that these, most of these teams did is wise trades. We talked about the Twins. I mean, the Twins without a doubt made some great trades. We, we talked about some of them. Um, the Rays made some great trades. The Expos, Again, we talked about Moises Alou. Moises Alou was a great pickup. And Delano to Shields for Pedro Martinez. I mean, absolutely, that's as good as it gets. <laughs> We're not and, talking about uh, John Wetland yet. John Wetland also. Uh, right, for, for not much for the Dodgers. You know, so that's another thing that jumps in here. We'll have to see how well the uh, the Royals do at that part. But it's – I guess we'll kind of – to wrap up, I'll, I'll throw the question to you. So – what do you think is going to happen with the Royals with this? What do you think? Well, yeah, that's, out? that's the way that I wrap it up is, <laughs> you know, the things that the Royals can't control to this point that they could, you know, you have the draft picks and you can go sign players you want to internationally. That's kind of a free market. At those things, they've done pretty well. I was really going to ask you, those last pieces are date more. I think, and I think we've established they have a second wave. The, the real key is do you trust Dayton Moore that he will be the general manager who will find the right pieces to surround those prospects, A, and B, will David Glass and, and Royals ownership um, keep the right players and continue to fund uh, the acquisition of players through the draft internationally to keep those successive waves coming? I, I think I trust the talent. I trust their prospects. I think their prospect class is pretty mighty, and I, I'm I'm stunned by the depth of the talent. I had a question in the chat. We, we they were recording this. I chatted at ba.com, and I, I you know I'd take Salvador Perez, their 17th prospect, over Mark Rogers, the Brewers' first prospect. But the Brewers have produced a lot more in the big leagues the last five years. The, the second part of that really would be I'd rather be the Brewers. I think the Brewers have a chance to win a World Series. You know, right now, this year, um, I'm not saying they're the favorite, but I didn't have a chance to win the World Series. Um, so I'd, I'd rather be Milwaukee. I, you can rebuild a farm system. I have some faith in Dayton Moore uh, to make the right moves at the big league level. I don't have any faith in David Glass. So I think the Royals will, but I, but I think that it's, I think I don't think David Glass can screw this up. I think they have enough talent to overcome. Uh, that obstacle, JJ. That, that's my take on it. I think they're going to be uh, have a run that's a little bit better than what they had in Cleveland in 2005 uh, and 2007. Uh, and it wouldn't shock it wouldn't shock me if the Royals became the new Twins as far as for a five to seven year window where they were the uh, medium market team that could. Um, 
what do you what do you think? I, I don't think they're going to be as consistent as the Twins for and the Twins have been good for a decade now. I don't know if the uh, yeah, the Twins the is a pretty high bar. At, yeah, it's yeah. I, I don't I don't know the, or I definitely don't don't see them becoming the Braves. I don't see Dayton Moore as quite being as skilled as uh, his you know his mentor John Sherholtz. I don't know that there's a Bobby Cox around. So I mean, look, yeah, that, that's a, that's also a very very high bar. Yeah, I was gonna say that's that's a, an exceptionally high bar to say. Okay, well you're gonna yeah make the playoffs. A lot of that credit for... has to go to Luck, obviously too, for the Braves. But they also traded pretty well. They never seemed to give up anybody that came back to haunt them. And uh, you know they picked up Fred McGriff, Fred McGriff for a bag of magic beans, and you know a couple other trades like that that worked well for them. But I have more faith in the prospects than I have in uh, in the ownership, but I have I think you have to trust a front office that evaluates talent the way they've been able to. And I know that last year I had zero faith in them, and I've been proven wrong as far as their ability to evaluate because uh, it's pretty amazing stable of talent they put together. Well, I, I I actually one of the things you brought up, you know, when you asked about the ownership, I I posed that question to uh, to Dayton Moore. Uh, myself in, for for this story and kind of you know asked the question well in, in some way i can't remember exactly how it was formed but 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 dayton made the point he said look since i've been here the three best players that we've had are zach grinke joaquin soria and billy butler and i think that that's uh i think he's accurate there that those are the three best players they've had and he made the point None of those three were six years and gone. Every one of those was extended. Now, Granke's obviously gone now because he told them he wanted to leave. But, right. but there is some point you could at least, there is some point, some argument can be made that it's not an automatic thing that all these guys are going to leave after six years. Now, some of them are because you can't, if this team develops as expected, you, you can't keep everybody. Um, and it's funny how you mentioned that. I think, you know, there is kind of a, a question. I think there's a, a very much a skepticism among Royals fans about whether a Dayton Moore team can succeed long term. And I think there is a lot of skepticism there. And it becomes kind of a, we've been talking about paradoxes the last couple of podcasts, but this is an interesting paradox is that, and I kind of pose the question in, in this, in the story that goes with this is, can a front office that builds a farm system like this really be, you know, kind of not know what they're doing? And it's hard to say that a, a group could evaluate so well at the minor league level and just not be able to do it at, at the major league level. It, it's right. it's hard to see how that can happen. But at the same time, you have to, you know, work in there that, hey, there haven't been a whole lot of moves at the major league level where you can point to it and say, wow, you know, the Royals really did that well in 2008 or 2009. Yeah, no, all their big league free agent moves have been disasters. I mean, there's another way to put it, is there? I mean, well, I mean, like the, the one, the one that the worst one was the one that seemed like it got, I mean, the, the best one was the one that got the most negative press. Right. And I was going to say, Gil Mesh, the Gil Mesh move. I mean, the, the contract that they signed him to ended up being okay. Right. You know. I, I seem to recall that – I seem to recall I, – I, I win that on the bet board. I seem to recall think, d- defending that deal at the time. But uh, but that one – But even though that deal was not a good deal. <laughs> but that – but you could defend that one. That one defends along the lines of if Jason Worth ends up being one of the better you know, right fielders in the game for the next several years – and the Nationals overpay for him, but you say, well, they had to overpay, and they got what they hoped to get out of him. In, Gil- right. in Gilmesh's case, he was their best pitcher until his shoulder fell off. So, well, so not, it's not second best pitcher. So it's like second best starting pitcher, I should make clear. Right. Like he was their best. Right. But he was their But, second. I mean, Jose Guillen, Willie Bloomquist, uh, you know, Campbell. really their best other acquisitions have been getting guys for – to signing guys to a one-year deal and then trading them, which – Dayton seemed to indicate to you that was that's their plan this year again too, was it not? Yeah. This off season. Yeah, and but now here, now here's one point I will make in defense of the front office. We've talked about like when you said the Brewers have produced much more in the last several years. 
everyone has produced much more in the last four years than the, than the Royals right. have. The Royals, right. in fact, Jim, just in a story that ran the same issue, again, available for free in digital edition if you sponsored by Rawlings if you want to check it out, the Royals rank dead last of what teams have produced in the last three years. Well, so with that, if you want to give a defense, one of the defenses is you have to sign players to – there's – there hasn't the only player that they've had at the AAA level who you can in any way argue has been held back because of trades or signings they've had for veterans is Keila Kahui. Right. Because they literally, there have been multiple years where they have not had another player at AAA who you could point to and say, that guy should be in the big leagues. And, and, and Keela is actually the one guy who gives me some real pause because he has on base skills. And you know, I'm not Captain Moneyball here, but he no, has on base skills. I'm not, but they have. He has on base skills, and they have brought in a lot of players who don't have on base skills. That's been a pretty consistent thing about the players they've signed, from Jose Guillen to Rick Ankiel to Jeff oh. Francoeur to whoever. Oh, the example, and, the the guy yeah, who they blocked, Keila Kahui, Mike Jacobs. Exactly. Exactly. So Keela has on base skills, and they don't seem to recognize that maybe that in and of itself merits a look, especially a low-cost look. So, I mean, Will, we will – obviously we will see over the next couple of years. The thing I'll say is, is that, uh, again, I, I anticipate – I expect to see a 90-plus win season out of the Royals in, the, in 2000. 13, 14, or 15, and probably expect to see at least two of them in the next, in that, like in a four year span there. You know, I figure right. by the end of 2012, we're talking about this is the, the team that we're talking is majority of these prospects have made it up. And by 2013, or probably even more 2014, we really see them doing something. Now, well, JJ, I'll tell you the team that's going to do something right now. I'm, I'm, I'm interrupting you because I just got in my inbox. The Omaha Royals roster, yeah. which is kind of exciting. I'm, gonna check, I'm checking my inbox right now because I want to see this too. <laughs> Danny Duffy, Lewis Coleman, Vin Mazzaro, Mike Montgomery, Everett Tiford, uh, Manny Pena up uh, as their as their catcher. Kind of like that. Uh, former longtime Royals prospect who's now uh, just a uh, space filler, Irving Falou. Um, but Eric Hosmer at AAA, along with Mike Moustakas, uh, Johnny Giovatella, Clint Robinson, and Lance Zawadzki, uh, with an outfield of Gregor Don de Blanco, Lorenzo Kane, and David Liu. Liu? Liu? Which, by the way, that's uh, that's a outfield of <laughs> that's going to cover some ground out there. So. Yes. So uh, that that's a good AAA team. But I don't a- actually. I don't see. There's no, I don't think there's a minor league free agent among the group. Orlando, Kane, Blanco, Lowe in the outfield, Zawatsky, Robinson, Mustakas, Hosmer, Givatel. Is I guess maybe Cody Clark? Is he a minor league free agent? Uh, I think he might be. And Zawatsky was a waiver pickup, right? If I remember right. I believe so. Yeah, I believe. So he wasn't right. a minor league free agent, but could, I couldn't remember if there was a maybe a minor a minor trade there or what. Yeah, it was one of those minor deals of some sort. But this this team is incredibly low on free agents. Uh, Kevin Pusatis, by the way, personal cheese ball of yours. On, he's on, on, that on their too. who's at least as of yesterday was still on their forty man. So I believe he still is on the forty man. But uh, that, ladies and gentlemen, is a prospect roster. I mean, that's well, especially that's that, a triple A team. <laughs> that's a triple A team with Hosmer and Mustakas. I mean, they're almost as a prospect at every position there. That's pretty sick. I mean, that's sick. And then your, your double A team, your double A team is the Will Myers, uh, John Lamb, Chris Dwyer group. Uh, probably Chris Cologne too. Probably Christian, Christian Cologne. Cologne. Yeah, Jeff Bianchi's the second baseman coming back from injury. Um, and then I think Derek Robinson's going to be their center fielder again. Uh, probably Salvador Perez behind Salvador the dish. Perez behind the plate. And then you're talking about a high A. You'll be looking at. Um, I haven't seen the. I checked tonight. I had not seen the high A roster being released yet. But you're talking about Melville and 
probably Odorizzi and I think Noel Aguayas might be there even at the start of the season. And that wow. Maybe uh, you could possibly work uh, Eibner in there also. And it, yeah, it, at every level, it's going to be a fun team. They're going to have a fun team to watch. I believe the uh, word to describe it is epic. <laughs> so, sorry. Sorry to drop a room in there, but uh, JJ, I interrupted you in the middle of a point that we can, uh, we can wrap up yeah, with but that. But you were... the, the point is, is I do expect to see, I, I will be surprised not to see this group succeed. Now that, you know, I have, I plan to have a follow-up story kind of for whenever I'm off of jury duty plus a little while um, to, to finish it up putting it together. But to get a little sabermetric for a second here, I did this study I'm working on about, you know, okay, let's take the top 30s. Let's really and add the depth chart if we can of, of these top organizations. And if you can get to 45 or so, wins above replacement, that's when you're talking about, uh, you know, at least a playoff contender, 40 to 45 wins above replacement. Well, you're not going to get that from one group of prospects, or at least I couldn't find a team that did. However, if you can get to close to 30 out of one group of prospects, it shouldn't be too hard, especially if you're talking about guys who are relatively inexpensive it shouldn't be too hard to find the other 10 to 15. Right. And that's going to be kind of the what will be interesting to see with the Royals. Because, for one, you can get some of that from guys you already have on your roster. I mean, maybe you know, maybe 10 of that comes from the com- – well, maybe 8 of that, say, comes from Billy Butler, Joaquin Soria. You can get that from guys coming up who are not part of that group. Maybe, you know, we're, we're talking about Sonny Gray as – or down the road, Bubba Starling or whoever they draft five overall this year could be part of that. But the other part of that is, is that, and then this will be the the key test for them is, is okay. Or you, you need to find some guys to fill in holes, you know, from trades and, and free agency. And that's where, if you look at the teams who were talking about being successful and we're talking about being successful because the, the, the point of this story, we haven't talked about the Yankees. We haven't talked about the Red Sox. We haven't talked about um, teams like that. Not because they're not very successful, but what the question that was really being posed here is, can you build it from the farm system when free agency is not really in much of an option? Right. And, you know, if we did this story a couple of years from now, you probably you might be able to throw the Reds into there as another example of that. Because we saw that last year, the Reds made the playoffs and it was an, a very homegrown team that did that. But. But most all of those teams, one of the keys is, is that they've made trades that really kind of bulk up that, that, that lineup or that pitching staff. That's the thing we still have to see with the, with this Royals group. And it's going to be interesting to watch over the next couple of years. Hey, I, I, I'll say this. By the end of this year, I'll be watching or listening to a lot more, uh, Royals games than I ha- definitely have in the last five to ten years. And, that includes, I mean, I've been doing the Royals top 30 for a while, but there, there hasn't been a whole lot of reason to catch many Royals big league games because of that. That'll start, right. that'll start to change. That's right. I'm just waiting to see who will be your personal Nick Blackburn. Who will be the guy that you have an irrational shine to, um, in the Royals organization. But, uh, that has yet to develop yet. You, you, you've been very rational about it, which is, you're to be applauded because it's a, it's a really neat story. And, uh, I definitely would encourage people to take advantage of that free digital edition. And, uh, if you need a link to it, uh, just find at JJ Coop 36 on Twitter or at John Manuel BA. I retweeted it. So, uh, we both have a link to it on our Twitter. So JJ, uh, again, I encourage people to read the, the prospects to penance and, uh, and just a job well done by you. And we, we okay. miss you in the office. So I get done with your soon. civic duty soon. I hope to be back soon. Well, for J.J. Cooper, I'm John Manuel. We'll see you next time on the Baseball America podcast. Until then, so long, everybody.